0: got some great news. It is now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. This is episode 92 of the Brain Science Podcast and I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell. Today's episode is our sixth annual review episode in which I will share some highlights and key ideas from the past year. The first version of this episode was over 2 hours long, so I had to go back and shorten it significantly. It's like trying to sound bite yourself, though, so quite challenging. Since I did spend many hours reviewing the transcripts in preparation for this episode, it did give me a chance to see how they all fit together. I was proud of the fact that every episode does stand alone but they also fit together. One of the themes that holds all the episodes together is the evolutionary approach. And you might wonder why would evolution be important to something like understanding the brain when the purpose of this podcast is to understand how our brains make us who we are. This is because our brains contain the history of the evolution of the nervous system going back to the first vertebrates through mammals and then primates, and then us. With that in mind, let's get started. Brain Science Podcast 81 was an interview with philosopher Patricia Churchland, who is a pioneer in what is known as neurophilosophy, which is the stance that philosophy of the mind should be informed by the latest findings of neuroscience. I interviewed Dr. Churchland back in episode 55, but I had her on this year to talk about her latest book, which is called Brain Trust, What Neuroscience Tells Us About Morality. Dr. Churchland told me that she has become particularly fascinated with the question, where do our values come from? She believes that the evidence supports the idea that morality is grounded in our neurobiology. In answer to the contention that morality is based on culture, she pointed out that although diverse cultures have very different beliefs, they mostly have common values. Based on the current research, especially with regards to the difference between montane and prairie voles, she's developed a hypothesis that the social behavior of mammals, including humans, evolved. Now, only 5% of mammals, including humans, are social, but she thinks that what happened is the ability to care for the young, which is more developed in certain mammals than others, evolved into caring for others and finally into complex social structures. She takes an evolutionary perspective and she says that evolution is very conservative. We share most of our brain structures with other mammals and lots of them with vertebrates. This is a theme I mentioned before and we'll come back to. In episode 82, I reviewed the book by Michael Gazzaniga, Who's in Charge? Free Will and the Science of the Brain. In answer to the question, Who's in Charge?, Dr. Gazzaniga takes the position that we are responsible for our behavior. He bases this on two lines of thought. One is that responsibility is a social phenomenon between people, not inside of our brains. And secondly, he rejects the determinist position that consciousness is purely a bottom-up phenomenon. Gazzaniga explains why he thinks that the principles of complexity theory should be used to see the mind as something that emerges from the complex system we know as the brain. He talks about why many neuroscientists resist emergence as an explanation. He also explains why he rejects the alternate explanation that many embrace, which is essentially based on determinism, the idea that if we could understand everything about how the brain works on the neuronal and circuit level, then we'd understand consciousness. The implication there is that if everything was bottom-up, We could argue that free will and personal responsibility do not exist. Instead, Ghazanaga sees the emergent mind as exerting top-down control on the brain. He acknowledges that people are uncomfortable with the idea of top-down control, but he sees the top-down and bottom-up influences as being complementary. It doesn't imply anything mystical or supernatural. Just because there are things that emerge that can't be predicted by the lower levels does not mean that the lower level rules can be broken. I'm not doing justice to the depth of his argument, so I really think that if you can read only one book, this would be an excellent choice. It's also available from our sponsor, Audible.com. This brings us to episode 83, which was an interview with Dr. William Utah who's written many books, but the focus of our interview was his latest book, Mind and Brain, A Critical Appraisal of Cognitive Neuroscience. This is really a critical look at the current literature, especially several meta-analyses of studies involving functional MRI. He looks at the problems, including the inconsistency between the studies and poor reproducibility. It turns out that even the fMRI of an individual person is highly variable, which I found surprising and sobering because it means that better study design is not going to solve this problem. Utah also challenges whether asking where is the right question, because that's what fMRI studies are focused at. Where does this happen? Where does that happen in the brain? But there's mounting evidence that once you get past primary motor and sensory processes, that the entire brain is involved. And that's why he thinks where is the wrong question. I have to say, after reading this book, I'm looking at all studies that refer to fMRI with a new level of skepticism. In episode 84, I interviewed Christoph Koch about his new book, Consciousness, Confessions of a Romantic Reductionist. This is Koch's second appearance on the Brain Science Podcast. He was one of my earliest guests back in episode 22. He is a pioneer in the search for the neural correlates of consciousness. We talked about his new position at the Allen Institute for Brain Research and about his new book. Surprisingly, Koch no longer thinks that emergence is an adequate explanation for consciousness. He has embraced panpsychism which is the philosophical position that in principle says that everything in the universe has a certain amount of consciousness. So Koch now sees consciousness as a primary property of the universe. He says it's like charge. This was really surprising to me since he had been a previous proponent of emergence, and I asked him why, and he said that he thinks that consciousness is too complex to be explained by emergence which is odd, given that that's the whole point of emergence is to explain complex phenomenon. But at any rate, that made me realize that I need to consider emergence in more depth, and it led me to insert an interview with Terence Deacon in between episode 86 and 87, but I'll talk about that when I get around to my discussion of episode 89. I'm going to take a little break here, and I'll be back shortly. Episode 85 of the Brain Science Podcast is an interview with Sebastian Sung, author of Connectome, How the Brain's Wiring Makes Us Who We Are. This is an excellent overview of neuroscience. It sort of reminds me of the book In Search of Memory by Eric Kandel. Although the difference is that Sung is at the beginning of his career and Kandel was looking back at the history of neuroscience from the perspective of his long career of over 50 years. And Kandel's emphasis was on the search for how memory works, whereas Sung is looking at the ongoing debate between those who believe in localization, that is, everything important happens at the level of the neuron and the connectionists who think it's all about how things are connected together. Like William Utah, Sung seems to embrace a connectionist viewpoint, and he also thinks that if we could determine the entire wiring diagram of the human brain, that we would be able to settle this debate. Of course, this is a very complex problem that we may be looking at 50 years in the future before we can get this wiring diagram since right now all we have is C Elegans and it's 302 neurons i see both the level of the neurons and the level of connections as being important but i would like to mention also that sung's book connectome is available from our sponsor audible.com so that was kind of a leading edge or future edge type interview so i wanted to talk about something a little bit more accessible to a new listener, so I had Rachel Hertz on to talk about her book, That's Disgusting Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion. This is her second appearance on the Brain Science Podcast since she was on back in episode 34 when we talked about smell. At any rate, it turns out that disgust is the only of the so called primary emotions that is learned. We also talked about the parts of the brain that appear to be involved in disgust and the interesting deficits that appear in people with certain pathologies. For example, psychopaths can't recognize disgust on the faces of other people, and they don't experience disgust. And this is kind of interesting given the fact that being a psychopath is the ultimate antisocial personality disorder. We talked about the relationship between disgust and lust, disgust and morality, even disgust and horror movies. We talked about Hertz's opinion that disgust is ultimately rooted in the fear of death. That's Disgusting is available from our sponsor, Audible.com, and this really is an example of a good book for reading in the audio format. So I will remind you that if you aren't already a member of Audible.com, you can get this or any of the other books I mentioned from Audible as a free download by going to Brain science. Okay, I know a lot of you never listen to the announcements at the end of episodes, so this time I'm going to put the announcements in the middle. First, I want to thank those of you who send me email feedback, because it means an awful lot to me. In fact, back a few years ago when I was about to stop the Brain Science Podcast, it was email feedback from listeners that really made me decide to keep going. I love the fact that I get email from a wide variety of people. I get email from physicians and mental health professionals, including psychologists and psychiatrists. I get emails from teachers. I enjoy hearing about how you use the Brain Science Podcast in your curriculum, whether it be high school all the way up to medical school. I enjoy hearing from neuroscientists and other scientists who tell me that hearing about the work of other scientists helps remind them why they got into science, because in reality, most scientists have to work in in narrow areas, and so they enjoy hearing about what other people are doing. I hear from students of all levels, which, as I've said before, was something of a surprise to me, but that's why I try to get advice for students from most of my guests. Although most of the students I hear from are college level, I do sometimes hear from high school students and even grad students and medical students. But my favorite of all is to hear from non-scientists, since you are my original target audience. I imagined explaining neuroscience to listeners who didn't know anything about it, and I wanted to give you accurate information. So I really appreciate hearing from you. I want to say, though, that my favorite quote of the year is from the listener who wrote to me and told me that I was the Terry Gross of neuroscience. I have to admit that I really appreciated that because it is such a easily quotable compliment. So when you send me email, I really do try to answer. However, sometimes you probably don't get an answer. It's embarrassing when I look back and see that I have old emails that haven't been answered. The two common reasons for this are, one, you either caught me on a day when I was at work and I put your email aside to answer and then forgot, or your email was too long and I looked at it and thought, well, I need to give this thought later and then didn't get around to it. So I really suggest that you try to make your emails short and succinct. If you have a complicated idea that you'd like to share, I recommend posting that in the discussion forum at Goodreads or on the Facebook fan page or even our Google Plus page and then just sending me a copy so that I can see what you've posted. If it's something succinct, you can also put it on Twitter and put at Doc Artemis in the tweet and I will see it. But if you want a response, the best thing to do is to make your emails short and succinct and do put Brain Science Podcast in the subject line that reduces the chances that it ends up being tagged as spam. I do want to also mention the resources on the website. I know it's right now a little cluttered and hard to find things, and I'm working on that, but I do want you to be aware that there's a lot of stuff there that you can use. Besides the free episode transcripts and detailed show notes, you can also find all the episodes, including the ones that have fallen off of iTunes, And there is a bibliography that lists all the books with Audible links for those that have it. If you're looking for something specific, don't forget to use the search box. It works pretty good. You can put the name of the scientist or the subject you're looking for and find it pretty quickly. It's a good way to overcome the clutteredness of the site. I want to remind you that you can, if you're a psychologist, get some continuing education credit, and there's more information about that on the website. That's through Mensana, and it is accredited. I did mention the social sites, Facebook, Goodreads, and Google+. We also have a Flickr page, and I think that that might become more active in the future since Flickr just updated their mobile app. Of course, there are ways that you can support my work. The most obvious is donations. There's a page for this on the website that includes the PayPal button, which gives you the option of monthly donations versus single donations. Sometimes it's better to go with the single donation because you don't get as much taken out by PayPal. You can also send checks or wire money. That information is on the website. Other things you can do is buy the app if you have a mobile device. The app is constantly improving, and like I've mentioned before, it allows you to get episodes that have fallen off of iTunes. I do need you to post reviews because every time the app is updated, the reviews disappear. Don't forget about my ebook. Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. It's also very inexpensive, $3.99, I think. And don't forget to post a review. You can also get gear, such as t-shirts. There's a link for that in the sidebar. Even if you don't have any money, that's why I keep the Brain Science Podcast and the transcripts free so that anyone can get them. Even if you have no money, you can tell other people about the show, and actually, word of mouth is very, very important to me. Finally, I need to mention that I am shutting down one of my other websites, which is called sciencepodcasters.org. It's a site I launched in 2008 as a site for science podcasts of various sizes. I'm closing that down because I don't have the time to devote to it, and the traffic's pretty low. If you're looking for good science podcasts, I suggest that you check out the National Science Foundation funded website, Science Radio 360. I will put a link to that in the show notes. So now let's get back to the review of last year's episodes. Back to our review. In episode 87, I interviewed Pamela Greenwood, who is the co-author of Nurturing the Older Brain and Mind. This was kind of a practical episode. It's a review of the current literature on aging. One surprising discovery is the fact that none of the structural changes that are seen in the normal aging brain correlate consistently with changes in mental performance. This implies that the changes are functional, which offers hope for improvement and maybe even reversal. And then there's the discovery of brain plasticity, which debunks one of the oldest myths, which is the one that we're losing 10 or 20,000 neurons a day, when in fact we're actually making new neurons right up until the day we die. Well, if we're making new neurons, we want to know how can we make sure they get into circuits instead of just dying off. It might be intuitively obvious that maybe we need to use them, just like with muscles. If you don't use them, they shrink. This is one of the reasons why it is so important to keep challenging yourself mentally, learning new things, and avoiding ruts. This is a bigger challenge once one retires. And we talked about some of the things that probably help. The problem with cognitive training, which is one of the questions a lot of you probably wonder about, is that there isn't very good evidence that cognitive training in general transfers to daily living. This means it's really important that you keep challenging yourself in stuff you do in the real world rather than trying to rely on like some kind of computer program. Also, a good principle is the idea that if it's good for your heart, it's probably good for your brain, since your brain depends so much on having a good blood supply. This means things like exercise, avoiding diabetes, avoiding smoking, because smoking's obviously bad for your heart. So it's likely, although I don't know that there's actual evidence, but it's likely it's not good for your brain. Again, this was intended to be a practical episode. I think that no matter what age you are, this is information that you can use or share with someone else. Then in episode 88, I interviewed Bruce Hood, author of The Self-Illusion, How the Social Brain Creates Identity. The subtitle of that book in the UK edition is Why There's No You Inside Your Head, which I think is the way it is on Audible also. Anyway, I have talked to Bruce Hood before, back in episode 34 of Books and Ideas, which is in the Brain Science Podcast feed, we've also talked quite a bit in the past about the fact that our sense of self is created by our brain. For example, I refer you back to the interviews with Chris Frith and Thomas Metzinger, but Hood's perspective focuses on development, because he's a child psychologist He has been interested in how the sense of self develops in children, young children. The key take-home point is that the child's interaction with the people around them is the most important factor in the development of their sense of self. It's not putting them in front of a computer. It's interacting with them person to person. This need for social connection with others is a lifelong need, being ostracized actually stimulates some of the pain circuits in our brain and explains why we are more influenced by others than we sometimes like to admit. We talked about some of the evidence about this, both in terms of research, studies, and in real life. But one encouraging thing is that in the situation of group pressure, if one person stands up to a group wanting to do the wrong thing, that's often enough to get others to change to the right position. So it can be hard to stand up to a group, but if you feel strongly that they're wrong, take the chance. Next comes episode 89, which is the interview with Evan Thompson. His book is called Mind and Life, Biology, Phenomenology, and the Sciences. I was in the middle of reading Mind and Life when I interviewed Terence Deacon. Deacon talked a lot about the emergence of life, but he doesn't really address the mind. Whereas Thompson's writing emphasizes the continuity between life and mind and uses a lot of the same tools that Deacon talks about. So it seemed natural to interview Thompson as a follow-up to Deacon's interview. Thompson sees the emergence of the cell as the breakout event. This is the point at which homeostasis appears. In essence, this is when value appears, because we now have the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell and the need to maintain the inside within some certain ranges. So this is really the beginning of experience, even though consciousness and awareness are millions of years in the future. We also reviewed some of the key ideas of embodied cognition, which takes the viewpoint that the mind is embedded in the body and the environment and we talked about phenomenology, which he describes as experience from the point of view of experience. We talked a little bit about how that could be used in neuroscience, and we'll follow that up with more detail hopefully next year because he's going to have a new book coming out about neurophenomenology in the fall of 2013. Episode 90 is a review of Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain by Antonio Damasio. This is an example of how the evolutionary approach emphasizes the continuity between life and mind. I see this episode as a bridge between Thompson's discussion of embodied cognition and Panksepp's conversation about the subcortical origins of emotion. All three authors share an evolutionary approach that emphasizes the continuity between life and mind. Everything we experience feels like something. This is sometimes called the hard problem by philosophers of mind, but it seems to me that if you appreciate the continuity implied by the evolutionary approach, then the hard problem of subjectivity disappears. As I said, self comes to mind provides A clear example of this sort of evolutionary approach, Damasio not only emphasizes the continuity between life and mind, but he also emphasizes, like Thompson did, that the evolution of mind represents an expansion of the same processes that make life unique. Damasio is interested in two questions. How does the brain construct a mind and how does the brain make the mind conscious? Not everyone will agree with Damasio the way Damasio makes a distinction between mind and consciousness, but the definition he uses for consciousness can be found in any psychology textbook. I think his goal is to break the problem into manageable chunks, and he's very consistent in his terminology. He calls the image-making ability of the brain mind, and he confines consciousness to awareness of oneself and others. Using these distinctions, neither mind or consciousness is unique to humans, but mind has existed much longer than consciousness. Damasio sees the brain's creation of a self as the point at which mind becomes conscious. While episode 90 is a fairly comprehensive review of Self Comes to Mind, my focus was on Democritus's discussion of the evidence that both mind and consciousness have subcortical origins which leads us into the discussion of the subcortical origins of emotions with Yac Pangsep. It's significant that this is a departure from Democritus's position in his earlier books. He also emphasizes the role of the body as the foundation of the conscious mind. He reviews the three lines of evidence that support this point of view. One is that bilateral destruction of the insula, which is a cortical structure, does not abolish emotions and feelings. Two, children born without a cortex are awake in feeling. They have emotions. And three, the superior colliculi, which are in the brainstem, demonstrate primitive mapping abilities. So basically what we have is evidence that we don't need the cortex, to have a primitive mind that includes emotions and evidence about where in the brainstem these functions are likely to begin. It's likely that these lower brain areas would have a bigger role in the mental lives of animals who lack a cortex. This brings us back to the theme of continuity. The human brain contains the same structures seen in other mammals, not to mention vertebrates. This was brought out way back when we talked to Patricia Churchland in the first episode of the season. Now, the cerebral cortex obviously becomes more important in primates, but we still don't know exactly what it is that makes our brains different enough so that we have language and no one else does. Damasio also talks about his theory about how memory works. I only had time to touch on that briefly. So, I highly recommend Self Comes to Mind Constructing the Conscious Brain as one of the top 2 books of the year it is also available from Audible. The downside of getting it from Audible, though, is that you don't have the diagrams that are in the appendix, which is an excellent review of the anatomy in case you want to know where things like the insula and the amygdala and whatnot are. Okay, so the last interview of the year was with Yach Pangsep. We reviewed the evidence that the primary emotional affects have their origin in subcortical circuits that we share with other mammals. These are circuits that can be stimulated with predictable results. It's also been shown that stimulating the cortex doesn't lead to emotions. The six emotional affects that Yach has demonstrated are seeking, fear, rage, lust, care, panic, and play. I focused on fear because I wanted to emphasize the evidence that fear begins below the level of the amygdala, which is located just below the anterior pole of the temporal lobe. The amygdala is very important in learning and memory, but it's not where fear or any other emotions begin. We go into this in more detail in the interview and in the book, but I point it out because it goes against what you may have heard or been taught. And as I mentioned a minute ago, there's a nice appendix in Damasio's self comes to mind that shows where all these structures are. I considered Yacht-Pengstip's work to be very important, so I refer you back to both of his interviews, episodes 65 and 91. I do want to bring out something that he said about the unconscious that we didn't really emphasize at the time. He said people used to think that the unconscious part of brain life was at the very bottom, but it's not. It turns out it's at the learning and memory level because learning and memory occur automatically unconsciously. So we sort of have these unconscious processes sandwiched in between the primitive affects, which are experienced, and our conscious awareness. It's a little hard to wrap your head around. But then we are learning that lots of what's going on in our brain, even at the cortical level, is beyond our conscious access and control. But the key take-home point is that the basic affects are experienced. We can not ask an animal what it's feeling, but we can observe its behavior. If it eats, we assume it feels hungry. And the animals that Panksep has studied clearly demonstrate that the various affects are either positive or negative, never neutral seeking is positive they'll self stimulate that circuit till they drop things like rage are negative they will do what they can to avoid stimulating that circuit and when these circuits are stimulated in people the expected emotions are demonstrated this is part of the evidence that has led both Panksepp and Antonio Damasio to argue that conscious experience including emotions begins below the cortex Descartes was wrong. Animals do feel pain and other emotions. Once we acknowledge that other animals, or at least mammals, have basic emotions similar to our own and that they do experience them at a conscious level, that is, to say they are aware of them, how should this impact our relationship with these animals? I'm going to have Pangsep back on my Books and Ideas podcast in early January of next year to discuss the implications of his research. As always, I refer you back to the episode for more details. Panksepp's latest book, The Archaeology of Mind, NeuroEvolutionary evolutionary Origins of Human Emotions, contains numerous references for those who want to examine the research in more detail. It's not a book for the casual reader. It's not an audible book. But I highly recommend it to students and to anyone who's working in this area. So like I said at the beginning, I did spend quite a few hours reviewing the transcripts in preparation for this episode, and it's given me a different perspective on how the episodes fit together. Each one of them stands alone, but they do inform one another. We started the year talking with Patricia Churchland about the neurobiological origins of morality and our social nature. Then we talked about Michael Gozoniga's book, Who's in Charge?, in which he embraces the idea that the mind is a complex system that emerges from the brain. He also warns against the misuse of neuroscience, specifically functional MRI, in the courtroom. He concludes that we are responsible, and this is something between people, not inside our brains. William Utal took a skeptical look at the inherent limitations of functional MRI and challenged whether where is the question we should ask. Christoph Koch surprised me by rejecting emergence as an explanation for the mind and embracing panpsychism. Sebastian Sung gave us an excellent overview of the history of neuroscience in his new book, Connectome. He also argued for the investment in a long-term project to determine the wiring diagram of the human brain. It remains to be seen whether this can settle the dispute between localization and connectionism but it does represent part of the trend toward connectionism. Rachel Hertz told us about disgust, and we talked with Terence Deacon about how the emergence of life and mind is a natural phenomenon. We now have rigorous tools for explaining how unpredicted behavior can arise in complex systems like the brain. Then we talked to Pamela Greenwood for a brief review of brain aging. Not so exciting, but very practical. Then we talked to one of the pioneers of embodied cognition, Evan Thompson, about embodied cognition and also how the evolutionary approach emphasizes the continuity between life and mind. I reviewed Antonio Damasio's recent book, Self Comes to Mind, which also takes an evolutionary approach and recognizes that mind and consciousness precedes humans, and both mind and consciousness begin subcortically. Jacques Panksepp was the last guest of the year. He also takes an evolutionary approach to one of the most cherished aspects of consciousness, emotions. And he shares Damasio's conclusion that the origins of consciousness are subcortical. So how does all this fit in to the past six years of the Brain Science Podcast. The Brain Science Podcast began as a result of my curiosity about how the brain makes us who we are. Obviously, the content of the show continues to reflect my personal interests since I produce it on my own and am solely responsible for its contents. We started out with a focus on a few main topics, memory, emotion, consciousness, and a fascination about how the brain really works, especially the unconscious. When it comes to emotion, like Damasio, my understanding of this topic has really evolved. We haven't talked much about memory since we last touched on it back in episode 66, although Damasio did present an interesting theory in his book. Consciousness has been an ongoing topic, and it seemed to be particularly dominant in the 2012 episodes. Free will was a question that wasn't even on my radar when we started. As you may have noticed, the opinions of my guests vary a lot on this one. I like Michael Gazzanica's approach. He acknowledges that the traditional concept of free will doesn't work, that we need a new way of looking at it. However, the fact that what our brain does is outside our conscious awareness and control does not take away personal responsibility Personal responsibility and morality are something social. They happen between people, not inside the brain. Plasticity is something we discovered early on on the Brain Science Podcast. It remains one of my favorite topics, even though we didn't get to talk about it very much this past year. It certainly has been a topic of much popular coverage and hype. Embodiment is another thing that I've discovered since I started doing the show, and it's become one of my favorite topics, especially with regards to how it relates to consciousness. So that got embedded into quite a few episodes this year. Another topic that has been becoming more dominant in my understanding is that of brain evolution. I touched on it back in episode 32, which is about brain anatomy, because the anatomy of the brain is a reflection of its evolution. I explicitly talked about brain evolution in episode 47, but as I said, it has become a main thread. It seems like almost every author that I featured in 2012 was writing from an evolutionary perspective. And as I mentioned, our human brain is, very, is unique in that it is something of a living fossil. I have to go back to, I think, the very first episode of the Brain Science Podcast when I talked about Carl Sagan's book, Dragons of Eden, because that was when I first became aware of this fascinating feature of the human brain. Now, as far as 2013 goes, I have learned not to make too many specific promises because sometimes things fall through. I do have an episode about pain promised, and I hope to do more on embodied cognition. Robert Burton is going to be coming back to talk about his new book. I'm hoping to put a show out every month. The website is going to be redesigned. I'm actually working with a professional designer for the first time. And I hope to have that out within the next couple of months. Also working on new theme music, because I know a lot of you really, really hate the theme music. That's why in the last few episodes I have quit using the original theme. I'm looking at the possibility of another ebook or two. I want to get more active in promoting the Brain Science Podcast and finding new ways to create continuing educational opportunities for listeners. In closing, I want to thank you for listening. I especially want to thank those of you who bought my ebook, Are You Sure?, and posted reviews. I want to thank you for sharing the Brain Science Podcast with others and for sending me feedback so that I know that my work makes a difference. I want to thank those of you who have bought the Brain Science Podcast app and those of you who have made donations. Finally, I want to give a special thanks to Lori Wolfson for her outstanding transcripts. I know these are a great resource to me and to many listeners. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright 2012, Virginia Campbell, M.D. You may copy this podcast to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at docartemis at gmail.com. The music used in this episode is from The Open Door by Beatnik Turtle. Please check out their website to find more of their music. Beatnik is spelled B-E-A-T-N-I-K. Thank you.